If you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We are going to be reading verses 7 through 13. Let's see what Jesus is telling his disciples here. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I'm going to pray over this as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We just ask that we would see clearly what we need to see and help me, Lord, to communicate clearly your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as we get into this seemingly simple little, and it is simple, it's straightforward, Jesus sends out the disciples. This is the first sending out that he does. He gives them authority to cast out demons, he gives them authority to heal the sick, and they do. He tells them they have some specific requirements, and some of those requirements are super exciting, like don't take any food and don't take any money. You go. Don't take an extra tunic. Just go. So let's look at a couple different things to understand the setting of what's happening and what Jesus is asking them to do and what they are doing and how that affects us and what we need to do with it uh, today. So the first thing is, you remember two weeks ago when we were talking about uh, Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth and he encountered radical, throw-you-off-the-cliff, we-hate-you unbelief. The kind of unbelief that says Jesus could there do no mighty work, the kind of unbelief that was 100% rejection because they were offended, because their hometown boy had come back, and they did not like that he was teaching and had this notoriety. They thought he was crazy. They wanted to kill him. That is the environment that Jesus took his disciples into. And remember, if you, if you do remember, I pointed out that verse 1 of chapter 6 says, he went to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Jesus, in his training ministry, which is what he's doing with the disciples, is showing them just how to influence friends or to make friends and influence people. That's, Jesus is showing them what it looks like when you get out in the ministry and you are going to be an apostle after my death and resurrection. I want you to get a taste of what you're in for. And what you're in for is murder. What you're in for is hatred. What you're in for is the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're in for as well. You're also in for people loving the message and people hating the message. You're in for a lot, and I am showing you now. So the setting 
is Jesus training the disciples who are going to be graduating into apostles. That's where we were earlier in chapter 6. So we get into verse 7 and he starts sending them out. Now, I want you to understand before I go any further that this is a temporary sending out. This is not the same sending out that you and I are going to get in the Great Commission. And specifically, the reason I want to point that out is there's things in here like no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Because some people will take this and say, the only way to do true mission work is to go with nothing. And that is not what this is saying. And here's how I know that's not what he's saying, because I want you to go to Luke chapter 22. Because there's this specific instance where Jesus is getting ready to have, well, he's getting ready to be crucified. So this is at the end of his ministry, and listen to the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples. Luke 22, verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? So Jesus is making a reference back to this moment in Mark. When I sent you out with no money bags, no knapsack, no sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's an Isaiah 53 reference. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, we're not going to explain everything here in Luke. But what I want you to see is Jesus says, remember that time that I sent you out without money and, and, and no knapsack and no tunic? and you were supposed to do it a certain way, well, that was then, this is now. I just want you to see that what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 6 is specific, and it's part of the training program that the disciples are going through. And in this training program, this is their seminary, you're going to go out with nothing and you're going to trust God. This is the conclusion of our sermon today. It's not over yet, but I'm giving you the conclusion now, and then we're going to come back to it. A lot of super excited people there when I said that. Here's the conclusion. Jesus is training his disciples to become apostles. Not everybody is going to become an apostle. In fact, that is another discussion. Here's what they're being trained in this passage of Scripture. People, number one, if people that are taking notes, here's your conclusion. Number one, people won't always like you. If you are a Christian and you stand firm for biblical conviction, it doesn't matter how many nice words you use. You are not going to be liked. I do not want to belabor it, but I do not want to pretend it doesn't exist. And this is what I mean. We live in a time 
where simply believing the Bible is going to make you guilty of a hate crime. So, that's where we are. People are not always going to like you, and it does not matter how nice and how nuanced you try to explain it. And I encourage nice and nuance as long as it's rooted in the truth. We should be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But it doesn't change this fact. The gospel requires repentance, which equals offense. When you tell somebody that they are hopelessly lost and sinful, and not only the big sins that we think of, but your very existence is sinful because you were born sinful, and you must have a Savior. That all by itself is offensive. So, lesson number one. People won't always like you. I need to hear that because I like for people to like me. And I try really hard for people to like me. But I've come to this conclusion. If you're going to preach the gospel, you are not going to win friends every single time. And if you are always winning friends, then you may not have the gospel baked into what you're saying. But the, the apostles, the disciples are being taught, you're not always going to be liked, number one. Number two, you should trust God no matter how bleak or meager the provisions may be. You need to learn to trust God with a growling stomach, with a cold, shivering night. The Apostle Paul gives this whole big laundry list that he experienced. Uh, shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, imprisoned, falsely accused. He has this big, long laundry list of things that he went through. Um, and Jesus wants his disciples and his apostles to understand that it, you've got to trust God no matter how hungry you are, no matter how bleak it looks. I've told the story a million times. I'll tell it a million more. The missionary in the tree, in the jungle, with the cannibals chasing him, said he had never been closer to Jesus than in that tree, hiding, and the words he could not get away from was, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, he eventually comes down and ministers to these cannibals, and they become Christians later. But in that moment, in that tree, terrified, possibly ready to die, and some have died, right, throughout history, the blood of the martyrs is everywhere. The blood of missionaries is everywhere, where they have went into areas, and as they preached the gospel, they died for it. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. You need to learn to trust God, period. Number three, your preaching, when you do it, is going to bring life, and it's going to bring judgment. For those who receive the gospel and repent, it is life. Our message is life. But for those who will not receive, as we've talked about in the past, my preaching and yours literally becomes the instrument of judgment because they won't listen. 
Super exciting, right? And number four, the power and authority of Jesus is going to empower you to do whatever you need to do to accomplish what I'm sending you to do. And in this case, I'm empowering you specifically to heal the sick and to cast out demons. That is the conclusion. So now let's get into the specifics of the text. So let's, let's go back, let's scooch back to verse 7. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So what is this two by two business? Why is he sending out teams in twos? So that's six teams of two with the twelve disciples. Well, one is a really practical reason. In Matthew, it tells us that they're going into the, not to the Gentile cities, but they're going to the Jewish towns. So keep this in mind. Jesus has a worldwide ministry of the gospel that's going to happen after his resurrection. But right now, he's called to the lost sheep of Israel. And he says in Matthew 10, I'm sending you out among the lost sheep of Israel. Go into the towns and the villages. So they're starting here in this Galilee area. Go out and start two by two preaching this message. So it gives you safety. You have more than one of you. There's, there's safety. There's protection. We're, we're going uh, to have wisdom involved by having somebody else with us. Number, number two, it provides fellowship and companionship. If we're going to make a comparison here to ministry, then when people are in ministry and they're Lone Ranger and John Wayne and they're off on their own and it's Clint Eastwood and it's My Way or the Highway and there's a lot of independent type of stuff out there like that, um, it is a recipe for moral failure or for discouragement and depression that leads to burnout. We need each other and we need help in ministry. Our church has elders. We didn't always used to have elders, but we have elders now. And the, the elders will tell you that at the very beginning of creating the eldership, part of my reasoning was, I need help. I need people that I can get feedback from and hear from that aren't just telling me what I want to hear, but that can help me and help the church together. So we need help. Number three. The Bible has this principle that's called, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. In the Old Testament, you couldn't just accuse somebody without there being at least two witnesses. In fact, our judicial system in America and English common law is based off of the Old Testament version of justice that had God at the top. Now this could really get me into a completely different sermon area. But the justice system that we take for granted, and that is supposed, and now justice has not always been blind, but it is supposed to be, and you're not supposed to have one person that's able to point a finger at another person. He said, she said. You've got to have more than one witness. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every testimony be established. And in the New Testament, that principle is carried over. One, by Jesus sending out two, you've got two people to testify to what Jesus is and who He is and the kingdom of God is here, so repent. So, so sending out two in the Jewish community made sense because they needed two witnesses. We have two guys saying, uh, yes, 
This is what we're seeing Jesus do. This is what we're hearing Jesus teach. That's why we're here to tell you to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what they were doing. So that was part of what two by two was all about. Now, the very next thing is he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And if you, that's the rest of verse seven. And if you skip over to verse um, 13, it says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So, so part of what Jesus did when he sent them out is he gave them the authority to do this. The fact, here's the first thing I want you to see about that. The fact that Jesus' disciples are empowered by Jesus to heal and cast out demons highlights that Jesus is the Messiah. Because you now have his disciples who have been watching him do miraculous work. Now they're doing the miraculous work. They're sent from him, empowered by him. This is not something that anybody would have ever seen before. The idea that the disciples of a rabbi would be empowered to do what this guy is doing would further cement and further prove that Jesus is the Messiah. They were without excuse in this whole region. When, because you remember the time Jesus said, if you don't believe me for what I'm saying, believe me for the works? Do you remember him saying that? But they, in their hardened condition and the jealousy that they had, they did not want to acknowledge that this was God at all. But Jesus, empowering his disciples, first thing to look at that is he's got to be the Messiah. It's got to be who he said that he is. Number two, any supernatural work God uses us to accomplish is going to be done by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We believe that God still does miracles and still heals, and all of that is still relevant today like it was then. Do not believe that it's always going to be the same frequency, and we can't assign formulas to it. There was a 400-year period where God said, nary a word. That was between Malachi and Matthew. Nothing. Nothing. 400-some years. When you read the Bible and see the great pillars and miracles of these things that happened, you're, you are frequently skipping over large portions of time. But I, you've got to be careful in the way you look at this. Because God can do anything at any time through any one of you who belong to Him which means that we should be people who are seeking God for the gifts of the Spirit. That is what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says. It says, earnestly desire the gifts. Remember, we've talked about this before. So part of the gifts involves some of these things. But my point is, is that this was a unique situation for the disciples where he sent them out to go do this thing on purpose. If God uses us to do it, and He might, and He 
he's not going to, if you're not out there asking him, and you're not out there praying, and you're not out there seeking him, right? If we're not in a position of asking or seeking, if we're in a position of, well, if he wants to use me, he will. That's like sitting on the couch and saying, if God wants me to mow the grass, he'll stick me in the lawnmower seat and cause me to do it. That isn't how it works. You get out of your seat and get into the lawnmower and turn it on and mow. We as Christians approach God in prayer and we approach God and ask Him to work and to move and we ask Him in faith and expectancy, asking Him to come and to work. My point is that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen not because you fulfilled a formula, not because you were super duper righteous, but because God empowered you in that moment through a provident, sovereign act that He wants to accomplish through us. But we have a responsibility to ask and to seek and to pray. And I just want to encourage everybody in here to not say, well, if God wanted it to happen, it would happen. Which I agree with. If God wants it to happen, it will happen. There ain't nothing He wants to happen that's not going to happen. However, the way that it happens is through people. Which is you. So I want to be one of the people that He uses to accomplish His work. So when I look at this and see that Jesus empowered them and gave them that authority to do it, then I, I should be somewhat encouraged to say, okay, Lord, when next time I'm in the hospital or the next time I've, I've got somebody, I want to seek You for their benefit and I want to give You the glory and I'm asking You, Lord, to come and to work and to intervene. It's not going to happen, though, because you're super-duper special or because you gave an offering to a particular preacher or because you prayed long enough or because you fasted long enough or because you said the words in the right order. I love all that stuff when I'm reading Harry Potter, but that's not how Jesus works. Number three, Jesus did not wait until His disciples were perfect to anoint them and use them powerfully in this way. I've already alluded to that, but have you ever really stopped to think about how ridiculous these guys were on a regular basis? The, how many of you are watching the Chosen series? How many of you have seen that? Now, I don't agree with every depiction they have, but some, one of the things that's really unique is when they have Simon the Zealot, who put down his sword because he wanted to overthrow Rome, mixed in there with Matthew the tax collector, mixed in there with Peter the hothead. And these are the guys that Jesus gave authority to go out and cast out demons. I can just see what that was like when Peter did it. I can only imagine when these people, uh, when they went into some villages, because they, they healed and they cast out many demons and many who were sick. You can imagine what these guys would have felt like. Probably a mixture of, Humility and, this is awesome! Jesus is not waiting on Tabitha to figure it all out, to use Tabitha. 
if he's waiting on you to figure it out, you're going to have to wait till you're dead. You're in heaven. God is not waiting on you to be a squeaky, clean, perfect person. Now, let me also say that we cannot live in consistent and persistent sin and expect God to use us. Okay? Unrepentant sin, I'm going to do what I want because it's okay, because God understands and God will forgive me. That is not the way to approach life. In fact, if you are approaching the walk, uh, if you're approaching your walk with God that way, you may need to reevaluate where your heart actually is. But none of us are perfect. All of us are sinners that mess up. And these guys were no exception, but he had called them and he empowered them, warts and all, to go do what he wanted them to do. So he gave them authority and they exercised it. Number three, which is verse eight, he charged them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So you don't get an extra tunic to turn into a pillow to sleep on your journey or to cover up on the cold nights. Nope, that's not what you're going to get. Instead, he said, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And I thought, that sounds like the master of the obvious, Mark. Stay there until you depart from there. Oh, okay. So that, okay, that makes perfect sense. You stay there until you leave there. All right, well, what he's really saying is, when you go into a village and Daryl and Terry meet you, and you tell them about the gospel, and they receive it, and they accept you into their home, stay there with Daryl and Terry until you leave that section or that village. That's, that's what he's saying. But that is what you are to rely on, disciples. You are to rely on God making provision. But he makes it clear that some places aren't going to accept you in which case there aren't any Daryl and Terry's to let you into their house, in which case you will probably be sleeping under a bush or somewhere. So keep in mind, this is a temporary thing. Remember what we read in Luke? This is a training mission. This is a training exercise. He wants them to learn how to trust God. Number two, God doesn't always call us to do things the same way and the same, ma same manner. You, you make a mistake, we make a mistake to think that because God led us to do a certain thing a certain way at a certain time, that God will always lead us to do it the same way over and over again. Because that, that isn't how God works. I've heard it said a lot of different ways. The best illustration is a biblical one, and that was manna from heaven. Does everybody remember how the manna worked? It came overnight. You gathered it in the morning. What happened if you tried to store it? It's filled with worms. You're not supposed to store it. You're supposed to listen to what God said. The only time you could store it was over the Sabbath. That was the only time the manna didn't get worms. So you woke up every morning and you gathered it, and you had to trust that it would be there again tomorrow. And this is kind of like, give us this day our daily bread. The way that we trust God is each single 
individual day. You need grace today, and He has it for you. You need grace tomorrow, and it's waiting on you tomorrow. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got its own stuff. You are in today. And in today, there is grace for what you need today. There is bread for what you need today. And in that principle, I need to trust that God does what God wants to do or that we would follow God at Celebration Church today in 2021 and not in 2007. Because the way we were doing ministry in 2007 is probably not going to work as well in 2021. We need to follow what the Holy Spirit leads us to do. Now, one thing doesn't change, and that's the truth. Truth is timeless. Methods morph and change. Whenever the methods start taking over the truth, that's when you have problems. And that has happened throughout the history of the church, and especially in the last 50 years. But our methods and the way that God may be leading us can be different. And again, I just remind you that in Luke, Jesus says, remember that time I told you to do it with the knapsack or without it and without the clothes and with all that? Well, now I'm telling you to fill up your bags with money and go do this. So, so it, it changes, and we need to learn how to follow God in that. Now, how do you follow God in that? I have no idea how to tell you how. My girls asked me this question, and here's Hannah and I were having a discussion on the way over. She wants to start a bakery, which, by the way, she made this bread yesterday that was ridiculously good, and I told her, don't ever deviate from whatever you did. Just do that over and over and over. Um, so she wants to do a bakery, and we talked about how God may, in fact, lead her to open a bakery. And the way that we approach that is the book of James. Rather than saying, I'm going to go to such and such a city and buy and sell and trade and do whatever I want, instead I should say, if the Lord wills, I will go to the city and do that. But then the next thing you do is, if it's in your heart to do it, you go attempt to do it. You don't wait and pray for 30 years for some kind of answer. You start acting. You start moving. There's a lot of Christians paralyzed waiting for an angel to come tell them something. Waiting for some kind of feeling or impression or I think the Lord said. Honest to goodness, there's just a lot of nonsense in that. You will spin your wheels forever just waiting for this miraculous moment. Instead... We should do what they did in Acts 16 and go preach the gospel. And as they were trying to go into Mass or trying to go into, I think it was Asia Minor, they get this call through this supernatural revelation. Don't go that way, go this way. But the only reason they got that supernatural experience is because they were already doing the natural part of action. So my my point is, how do we figure out what the will of God is? We submit it to Him in prayer, say, Lord, we want to do what You want us to do, and we start acting. And then He will, with the Holy Spirit bumper lanes, like in bowling, bump the ball back off of the gutter if we're listening to Him and keep us where we're supposed to go till we hit the pins. That is the way that I see it working. Not sitting around 
fasting 30, 40, 50 days and trying to get some kind of answer because I promise you'll get some answers. Anybody ever gotten some answers that turned out not to be really all that great? I can't be the only one. Can't be the only one that said, well, God told me this, and then find out 30 days later. That was clearly not God. Anybody? Just as a side note, and don't interpret anything out of this, but just as a side note, I want you to compile all the scriptures in the New Testament that teach you how to hear the voice of God. Because there's a grand total of zero. I'm not saying he doesn't talk. I'm just saying that there aren't any verses in here that tell me how to hear him. This is him talking. This is him talking. The baby agrees. This is him talking. And you familiarize yourself with him talking. The Holy Spirit can lead us with wisdom, circumstances, and maybe every once in a while you'll actually hear God talk. And I'm not, I have no way of telling you how you know. Because there isn't anything here that tells me how to tell you how you know. There's just a lot of subjective experiences. But I believe he talks. Okay, that is a, that's another can of worms. Next thing. What is this business about shaking the dust off of your feet? So we've, we've been to Daryl and Terry's house, which is always good to go to because she makes really good food and she's one of those people that makes you eat before you leave. I love those people. Jennifer and I are so different in this regard. If I go to your house and you offer us something, I'm taking it, okay? I'm just telling you. If you want to give us $20 in a card, I'm going to say, Thanks. Do you know what Jennifer's going to do? No, 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 no. She's going to try to shove it back. How many of you know Jennifer and know exactly what I'm saying? In fact, some of you know it so well that you have circumvented Jennifer and came to me. Uh, Steve, I know Jennifer won't accept these chocolate chip cookies, but you will, and then praise the Lord. So we work. It's a team effort, and that is how that works. So go to Daryl and Terry's house in village number one, and you have preached the gospel, they receive you, they bring you into the house, you're like, this is what Jesus was talking about. They bring over their cousin, they're demon-possessed, cast out the demon, you preach the gospel, people are getting saved, there's people that are sick, you heal people, and then it's like, wow, this is awesome, this is what Jesus said, let's go on to village number two, and in village number two, there's a bunch of Grinches and Scrooges, and they want nothing to do with you and they basically kick you out of the town. What do you do then? Verse 11, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this should cause some shivers to go up and down your spine. Because Jews did this very thing. If they had to walk through Samaria or they had to walk through a Gentile region like where Jesus was in Gadara, the Decapolis on that side of the Lake of Galilee, if he had to go, if, they, if a Jew went up there for whatever purpose, when they left, they cleaned their feet and shook the dust off 
because they were contaminated by Gentiles. So this was a common understood Jewish culture issue. But Jesus is sending them not in the Gentile villages, but into Jewish villages. And he's saying to do the exact same thing, except do it to those who reject the preaching of repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is scary. Because Jesus says, let it be a testimony against them. And in Matthew chapter 10, it tells us, verse 15 of Matthew 10, it says, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those villages that reject you. That's where the shivers come in. Jesus is saying that your preaching for these people becomes a judgment, and as an act of symbolic judgment on these people, go outside of that village where you've been rejected, shake the dust off of your feet, and move on. Paul did this uh, in Acts chapter 13. He does the exact same thing. He and Barnabas, they're rejected by Jewish leaders. And he says, fine, we will go to the Gentiles. That's where God's sending us anyway. And they go to Iconium, and they, take their, they shake the dust off of their feet there, taking it from here. Now, my question is, do you think you and I should do that? Can we apply this? I don't think this means that Monica is at work and she shares Jesus with one of her co-workers and that co-worker rejects it, that Monica should step outside, out around behind the counter where the nurses are and take off her shoe and symbolically, symbolically shake the dust off of her feet. I don't think that is what she's supposed to do. But I do believe that this is still, in a sense, happening for any group or any community or any segment of culture that our preaching is to them judgment when they reject Christ. And this is something, again, in this temporary training, he wants them to understand the power and the impact of their preaching. Those who receive you, he says in Matthew, let your peace come upon that home. Those who reject, go outside and shake the dust off of your feet against them as a testimony against them. Finally, verse 12, they preached. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They proclaimed it. It's where we get the idea of preaching. What I'm doing this morning is more like teaching. A proclamation is more of a, it is a declaration of the truth. And, and when you go into a group and say, listen up, everybody. God was patient with all your gods, but now requires that men everywhere repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a proclamation. That's what Paul did in Athens. To proclaim is to just declare, here's how it works. 
and you trust that the Holy Spirit empowers that gospel proclamation. And sometimes you're rejected. You can't measure your success off of rejection. Jesus was rejected all the way to the cross. But he's also simultaneously shows like yeast in the kingdom of God or a mustard seed, like those parables that he described, how these little moments explode into something bigger. Jesus also started the whole revolution of men and women becoming born-again believers through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this ragtag group of misfits, his disciples, who are in training here, set the world on fire and turned it upside down, according to the book of Acts. So, you and I can't measure success based on immediate responses of people. Somebody rejecting you because you're a Christian is actually a moment for you to rejoice that you were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of His name. They go out and preach. And they preach repentance. The problem with the last 50 years, maybe, of a lot of preaching is that it has so heavily emphasized the love of God and never mention repentance, that people get a warped view of what the love of God is. The love of God only makes sense if you understand first that you are a sinner in violation of a holy God's decree. And then it makes sense that if this holy God who demands perfection while you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's where the love of God makes sense. But to leave out the first part, the repentance and the holiness of God, is to create a pot-smoking hippie Jesus that doesn't care about any sins, and everything's okay, and it's alright, because you can do what you want, because I'm a big grandpa teddy bear in the sky. That is not who He is. You cannot understand the love of God until you understand the holiness of God. And they're not at odds with one another. God's holiness is not at odds with His love. His love is not at odds with His holiness. He demands perfection and you can't give it. So He gives it for you through His Son Jesus who He then clothes you in His righteousness that you couldn't earn. This is wonderful news. It's called the Gospel. But you have to repent of your sin and turn from your wicked ways and be saved from this perverse generation by trusting in Christ to do that work for you. That's what they go out to preach. And some people will receive that gladly. And some people will not. Their message of repentance was embrace the King of Kings and His kingdom. He is here now. Their message was authenticated by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, casting out demons, healing the sick. And that's what they did. What's the conclusion? I already gave that to you. The conclusion is as follows, and I quote, 
people are not always going to like you. You need to trust God no matter how bleak or how meager the provisions. Your preaching is going to bring forth life and judgment. And the power and authority of Jesus is going to empower you. The power of God is what you and I have to rely on. Not on our cleverness, not on how smart we are, not on answering all the questions about the dinosaurs. Our reliance and trust has got to be in Jesus. And there is a simplicity in that. We need to trust Him. And we need to act. We need to go forward and share. We need to talk to our neighbors. We need to talk to our coworkers. We need to talk to our friends and family. We need to look for conversations. We don't want to generate more heat than light. Does everybody understand that expression? Heat is just, I want to win an argument. Light is, here's what the truth is, and I'm desperate for you to see it. There's a difference. Sometimes you, there are people out there that hear this message and go, that's right. I can't wait to give a punch in the mouth to some people. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there's far fewer of those than those of us who are saying, oh Lord, please quit talking about sharing. Please quit talking about sharing. I just want to be a good Christian in my home and not bother anybody and never share and never talk and never offend. I just, I just don't. And you keep talking about this and it keeps happening in the Bible and I keep reading it. I just wish we could talk about other things, please. I think there's more of that in this room and on this stage for all of us. So, the only solution to our fear, the only solution to our oh no, is that the truth? Is this, is this the training ground of disciples? The only, the only solution is for us to say, God, in you I will put my trust. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Nothing. And what would it look like if all of us in here start sharing the gospel and get a lot of people to be upset, but a lot of people receive the message? What would, what would happen then? What would happen if, if you got an opportunity to pray with somebody and God intervened in some crazy way and they were healed? What, what about that? What if, what if that happened? It might encourage you to keep going. So, the disciples are somewhat unique. Let's grant them that. We're only, they were the only ones that got this specific training from Jesus. I mean, with him right there. But you can't dismiss the reality that Jesus is with us now, training us individually through the Holy Spirit in unique and interesting ways. So you can't just say, ah, oh, that was Peter and them. Oh, Peter was an idiot as far as I can tell. Uh, he's, he was, he was uh, a hothead. I'm glad he's in the Bible. I'm glad God used and chose him to do that ministry. Might use you too. Let's all stand up. When I say he might use you too, what I really mean is, he will use you. That's what I really mean. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that you use your people. And God, I pray you would be pleased this week to open doors of opportunity, that there would be moments where we clearly remember this sermon. We remember, God, that you are with us and you are the one who empowers. God, I pray that we would recognize those moments when they come and that we would have boldness, Lord, as we open our mouth and lovingly, humbly share the truth of the gospel. There's a lot of other things we can talk about. We can talk about vaccines and masks and economies and hyperinflation. And there's lots to talk about in politics and sports. God, help us cut through all of that and to have bold proclamation of the gospel. Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you you're with us. You're not going to leave us alone on our own, but you are with us as we are among our, our friends and our family and our co-workers. God, we give you praise and glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. Camp leaders and workers, you are going to be meeting in the gathering room or the multi-purpose room, depending on what we call it.